Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, clever friends. If you'll be in New York City this month for Design Week, I want you to come to the Emerging Designer Showcase. It's at the Javits Center during ICFF on the main stage, Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Think of it kind of like lightning round mini critiques plus professional speed dating all rolled into one. And it's genuinely entertaining. Here's how it works. On stage, five rising design talents will each present their work to a group of illustrious industry professionals for real talk advice and critical feedback. And for better or worse, this all happens in front of a live audience. We've hand-selected a phenomenal group of designers for this year's show, and we have a star-studded lineup of very discerning industry pros who will be up there with them. The Emerging Designer Showcase is presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Again, that's Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. at ICFF at the Javits Center. You can register to attend for free at icff.com with our special promo code D-A-P-M-C-L-E-V-E-R. See you there. Part of what I do today, what many of us do in the world today, whether you call it design or marketing or advertising, we the art of persuasion is is really an important part of being successful. Hi, everyone. I'm Amy. I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. And today we're hearing from Alan Sylvan. Alan is the founder and CEO of Sylvan Labs, a strategy and design consultancy, which is also a certified B Corp. B Corps meet rigorous standards for social and environmental accountability and public transparency. So basically, he's using his superpowers for good and helping big business to do the same. Recently, I attended the Adobe 99U conference where Alan gave a talk about innovation, how it has become a diluted and toxic distortion, and how we can reclaim it. He also has outspoken views on the practice of purpose washing. That's when big business uses their purpose as a marketing ploy, but doesn't actually practice what they preach. So we knew we wanted to hear his full story. Just a quick note, Jamie wasn't able to be there, so I flew solo on this interview. We had a good talk. Here it is. My name is uh, Alain Sylvain, is how you say it in French. And I work for Sylvain Labs or Sylvain Labs, depending on what affect you want to put on. We are a um, strategy and design consulting company based in New York, uh, which is where I am, New York City. We have uh, about 40 people. Most of them are here. We also have an office in Amsterdam, the Netherlands, and in Richmond, Virginia. 
Uh, I'm the founder and CEO. We've been doing it for almost 10 years. I'm passionate about this because, you know, it's it's sort of a platform for me to assert a part of my identity that I don't usually get the chance to. I can work on projects that I want to work on. I can work with people I want to work with. That's why I'm passionate about it, is the the freedom that it allows for. So we like to go back and get the foundation of the person. Can you give us a sense of the timing and context of your formative years? I was born and raised in New York City, in Queens, New York. My parents are immigrants. They moved here in the 60s. And that was sort of the defining context for me growing up. You know, New York in itself was a pretty profound sort of Petri dish to to, to be born in, in that the, the 80s, there were a lot of things going on. Having parents that were immigrants who came here from Haiti um, in the 60s with, with an expectation to achieve sort of the American dream, that that was a pretty important context to, to be around as a kid, as you, you, what you'll hear from a lot of people that are children of immigrants is that they're sort of burdened with a new responsibility to fulfill their parents' dream. And so failure is not an option. Traditional career paths are the only ones to consider. That was sort of the defining thing for me. And, and it, it for me, it, it presented um, opportunities and challenges, you know, opportunity in that my parents had really high expectations academically and I needed to achieve. Failure wasn't an option. Uh, it was challenging in that you know, the definition of success was limited, you know, creativity, um, the idea of being a creative person wasn't really, there wasn't really an understanding of what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a culture, to be honest, in the eighties, we didn't really reward it the way we do now. It took me a, a real long time to realize that I enjoyed being creative and maybe even was good at it. So that, that was the context and that's how it, it, it helped and hurt, I think. Although I love my parents, I wouldn't want I wouldn't want them to hear this and think they <laughs> fucked up. No, I think I think we all have to make sense of our youth, and we can love our parents and also process the context that we were brought up in. And we've talked to so many people on the show who are first generation Americans, and there's a real beauty in the outside insider perspective. You being kind of both in that you have your parents' outsider perspective kind of built into your DNA and then born and raised, you have your insider perspective and you can appreciate America, I think in a, in a richer way when you have both of those perspectives to work from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a challenge, you know, because on the one hand, you know, I I look at America relative to Haiti and there's so much opportunity here and so much progress and safety and all of that. But at the same time, as an American, I expect more from America. I think you're right. It provides some perspective, but also it doesn't really absolve me from being critical of, of this country that I'm from. I can tell you where it gets where it gets complicated for me personally is I, I have children. Yes. And it's hard to to see them as purely American because, you know, I, I kind of was on that cusp and my parents were not, although they're American citizens now, they were not, you know, American when they showed up. The question of identities is sort of playing out with my children now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so how how American are they and how important is it that they're American? That's just, I don't know, maybe that's another podcast, but that, that's a, something I'm thinking about. Yeah, no, I think it's really interesting because I also think that America is a tapestry of immigrants. So that depth of Americanness means what? Like that just means how homogenized you've become mm-hmm. or like your children who can be American with identify culturally with some Haitian right. heritage. Is that not American? I think it is. I think it's the very definition mm-hmm. of the melting pot. Don't you? 
I agree. It is. I think there needs to be a real sense of, you know, if, if that's true, if it's true that being American isn't meant to be this tapestry, if it's true that you can be a Haitian American and not really compromise on any part of your identity, I, then that, that's exciting. And I think that's something, you know, I try to live today and I try to bring that out in my kids. But I, I do think there needs to be a connection to the past. There needs to be a, a real sense of responsibility for where, where you've come from. That fuels a lot of what I do. You know, my, the fact that my parents came from Haiti and it was, a, it was a very, very different world. And here I am, I'm talking to you from Soho in New York City and I live in a nice apartment. I carry a responsibility to justify the trip my parents made. And, and so do my kids. And, and if I could even go further back, you know, I'm a descendant of slaves. There's a lot of trauma, historical trauma uh, in, in my lineage as it is or many others, you know, whether you're talking about survivors of the Holocaust or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think, you know, those of us who, who are sort of further down in that lineage, there needs to be a connection to the past. It's not enough to say, well, we're a part of America and we're all it's a, it's a, you know, multi-cultured uh, tapestry. There needs to be also an unapologetic clinging to the past because there's some atrocities that have been committed and our success today is a sort of a response to that. And so that, that, that fuels me a lot. You know, a lot of times when I'm on, when I talk to people or I'm on stage or something, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how this is a unique opportunity and I need to fulfill the sacrifice that generations before me committed. Not to be too righteous about it, but it, but it is it is something that I think is important. No, I think about that too. I mean, I'm a middle-class white lady, so I'm not sure where my voice is in this whole thing, but I do think that America has an idealism that we can strive for, that we should all keep working towards. But in doing so, I think we really do need to own our trauma and process it properly. And I don't think we've really done that fully. And these generations that now have a little distance from it can potentially, you said cling to it. I do feel like there's a gentle sort of tilling of that traumatic soil that can happen in order to bring certain things to the surface so that we can actually deal with them. Is is that how you're looking at it too? I believe there needs to be an acknowledgement of difference and that it's not in conflict with what America is today. So I, I'm agreeing with you. And by the way, I think we all have a right to speak about difference, whether you're a middle class white woman or whatever. <laughs> yeah. um, I think it's important it, to, to understand culture. I mean, the, the truth is are all also in the midst of this conversation we're having about identity politics, which I'm loving, there's also subconscious biases at play, mm-hmm. you know, that a lot of people have, you know, sort of the language to talk about difference and be aware of difference. But in the moment, in actions and choices and decisions we make, there are biases that have been embedded within us. And as long as that's true, to me, it's important to still cling to some of the some of history and some of some of the past. Well, yeah, because I, I don't think there should be any sort of washing off or scrubbing off of identity or heritage. And I also think that clinging to the heritage of the past and celebrating the differences is how we're going to overcome any sort of innate biases that we have. Mm-hmm. That you know, we we have to become aware of them in order to appreciate. And I do think what one of the things that just is personally one of the things that makes America 
so rich and wonderful is that you can meet so many people that come from so many different backgrounds. That's one of the things that I appreciate. And I thank you for going deep with me on this identity politics <laughs> talk. I love it. Well, I, I relate to what you're getting at. I mean, the, you know, what happened post-World War II in Germany or the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in South Africa, there is some collective healing that needs to happen and can happen and be very positive. Yeah. All right. Well, let's let's you and I both work for that then. <laughs> yeah. So let's move on to your adolescent years. I, I don't know if you had siblings, but usually that's that's when creativity starts needing to express itself, whether you've kind of identified it as a creative or it's encouraged by your parents or not. Can you identify ways in which your creativity started poking out of your system in your adolescence? Sure. I, I have um, two brothers and all three of us um, as kids were very creative. We made stuff, we a lot of fantasy play. You know, we made music and we played in fake bands and we were had business ideas. I, you know, I, I probably did a little a little bit more than my brothers, but we all we all did it. Did you play and instruments had, and sing or dance? Yeah, I, we did all of that. Ah. And some of it well. Some of it we did well. Most of it not very well. <laughs> but you know, this this was a time there there wasn't we weren't didn't have the same distractions around technology and so on. Mm -hmm. um, we were in the city and the, you know, there were also limitations around how much you can be outside and all that our imagination ran wild and it was exciting. It was an ex exhilarating time, you know, with, in, in the eighties and nineties, new things popping up. I was thinking the other day about Michael Jackson's uh, thriller video and, you know, Michael mm -hmm. Jackson's not exactly the coolest person to bring up on a podcast in 2019, but 1980, whatever, when the thriller video came out, that was, that was out of control. I mean, the, the idea that someone who made this amazing song then made a 12 minute video and then, then showed you the making of that video. And it was a story and it pulled you in and it was a drama and a horror, you know, film directed by a Hollywood director that we would go see that and come home and kind of enact it on our own, in our own mm -hmm. way. And that played out in a lot of different ways. It played out with music, it played out with video, it played out in film. We would see these things that had never been done before. Star Wars had never, you know, I wasn't born when Star Wars first came out, but, or maybe I was a baby, I don't know, but. I remember seeing Star Wars and Return of the Jedi and all those movies in the theater. And it was like, this shit has never been done before. Yeah, Like this is a, like a space opera that's out of, out of control. And so we would come home and enact that in my, in my youth. And there were a couple things that we did that were, that's very memorable for me. You know, I, I remember I, I started a, a kind of a fake business when I was a kid and it was totally fake. Like there's nothing real about it, but I kind of pretended that it was real and it, it was probably one of the first sort of creative entrepreneurial things I ever did. I um, mean, I had a lot to do with the stimuli of the, of the time. Can you tell me, was it a, what is it, a service business or a product? What was it? <laughs> a friend of mine and I, we created a, a restaurant and it was called, uh, it was called TNA. It was a restaurant and it was just a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, you know, cause now you, you want me, you know, I want, you want to hear something like it was the Uber of telecommuting right. or something like that. No, no, no. It was, it was just like, People come in, you serve them food, and they pay you for it. It was fun. It was fun. We all had different roles, and we had we needed a logo, and you know we we designed a logo, and that was a really exhilarating moment. We had to design a menu, and that was like amazing. And so the restaurant just kind of became an excuse to make stuff. Oftentimes, designs very simple stuff. Oh, but I love that because 
I think at that age, I probably thought of a restaurant more in terms of just the the wait, you know, the dining and the mm. and the service. <laughs> right. But to yeah. get really granular with like, no, we need to brand this place. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, the irony is we didn't really make any food, and there wasn't oh. any. But there were there was tons of like paperwork and logos and you know documents and carbon paper and steep, you know. It's, it's, you're right. You're right. There was no food involved in this <laughs> restaurant. It was, there were, there was a lot of design. We just needed the thing to put to paper. Yeah. You know? <laughs> we just needed, we just needed the thing to talk about and the thing to bring to life. And the, this imaginary restaurant was that thing. But I didn't really understand it until I'm talking to you right now that it wasn't actually about food. <laughs> well, is, it, it wasn't actually isn't that food. fascinating? Because what seeped into your subconscious when you went out to restaurants yourself, you're like, okay, so the food mm-hmm. is one aspect of it, but it's only one aspect. The rest is the menu design, the, the logo. Totally. The aesthetic, the aesthetic right? Like yeah. the, the whole vibe that that maybe, as you said, subconsciously, I picked up the fact that you know, someone put some real thought into creating that experience. Did you de- design a physical um, space too? Did you have ideas about ambiance? Yeah, we did. We, we created a floor plan. Um, I love this so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's depressing and, and I, I, it's, it's not, wasn't very, again, not very good, but it, it was, there was a floor plan and we thought about user flow. Really? And, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is perfect. Yeah, it was, I mean, I, I should revisit some of that stuff because I don't really appreciate it. I didn't appreciate it for what it was at the time. And I don't think anyone else really understood what it was at the time. It was, you know, a kid trying to, uh, you know, imagine something. Well, it's always kids making sense of the world, right? That's one of the reasons we really like to talk to our guests about these times in their lives, because I think it, it does end up making impressions and informing your thought processes in some ways. I agree. You said you your parents really stressed academics, and you studied at Vassar College and Columbia University. Can you tell us what you studied in college and what those years like were for you? Were they liberating? Were they mind expanding? Were they rebellious? <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Keep going. Tell yes, us those stories. All of those yeah. things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Vassar College is a liberal arts college. It used to be an all women's college. And it had a it had a very progressive and still is a very progressive university, and so it was really enlightening for me. You know, before that, I went to the United Nations International School. Uh, my my mom worked for the United Nations, and as a result, sent us to the UN School, and that was a liberal experience in one way because all my friends were from other parts of the world, mm-hmm. and, and that was amazing. And then to go to an American university um, that was so liberal and progressive was also very um, enlightening. And I got exposure to ideas, I'd say, that that were foreign to me. You know, some of it came from academics, but also some of it came from just kind of social interactions. Mm-hmm. And so it was it was definitely an expansive time for me. And, you know, if you, those four years for me, there was probably like six different <laughs> versions of me during those four years of college. I just went through a lot of change and evolution. And by the time I left, it really shaped me a lot. Um, I then went to grad school and I, I didn't finish grad school, okay. um, but I, I studied international affairs and business. And I was trying to put to work all of the ideas that I had learned in, in liberal arts. Um, and I had a vision of working in government and politics. And oh, what was that um, vision about? Well, because my mom worked for the UN and I had some proximity to mm-hmm. it. I, and I was really sort of in awe of, 
political campaigns and how these sort of abstract ideas became visceral for people, you know, that they, that, that a candidate would represent a concept and then you'd buy into that concept and, and support them. I was really in awe of that. And I ended up, uh, right after school, I ended up working for a political consulting company. What was a political consulting company working on campaigns. And that was amazing. I worked on a South African presidential campaign. It was, it was fascinating. Wow. Yeah. It was so cool. It was so cool. Did you learn a lot about the, I mean, you're holding a lot of power in your hands when you're deconstructing how to persuade people and get them to vote. I was, you know, 24 or something. So I, I personally didn't hold a whole lot of power, but, but that whole world and industry. Yeah. yeah. That's what's fascinating about yeah, it. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating and it, and it really was an education in persuasion, which is ultimately part of what I do today, what many of us do in the world today, whether you call it design or marketing or advertising, the art of persuasion is, is really an important part of being successful. And, and here I was working in this environment where we were persuading people with promises of their future, mm-hmm. you know, like vote for this person because they will represent you the best and so I learned a lot there. I learned a lot. I learned that people want things to believe in, actually, that they're desperate for something to believe in. And if you can present a compelling case, they'll, they'll believe it. I learned a lot about coalition building. Like, how do you mobilize people around an idea? Mm. You know, how do you create ambassadors of those ideas? I learned a lot about storytelling. You know, how, how do you put an argument together? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really important. Anyway, I ended up working in, in that environment and... And that, the company I worked for ended up evolving from a public consulting company to more of an advertising agency. It was called uh, Shepherdson, Stern, and Kaminsky, SSNK. They still exist. They're awesome. Okay. Before I knew it, I was working in an advertising agency. It was crazy. I thought I was working in political consulting. Uh, and then I was like, I work in an advertising agency. You got grandfathered in. <laughs> and I didn't choose to work in advertising. I didn't have an interest in advertising. But before I knew it, you know, here I was. I went to grad school to study international affairs. I had this vision of working in politics and persuading people to represent them better. And I ended up working in advertising, you know, ultimately shilling carbonated soft drinks and stuff like that. It was just a really bizarre evolution that happened. I didn't even notice it was happening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, 
Even his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called Mouse Parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole. And things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. So you may not have chosen it, but it seems like it still was uh, educational territory in terms of what you're doing now, because you probably got to see inside of big brands and how they operate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the, the thing that really was it for me that, that I loved was that's when I sort of realized I was a creative person. Okay. When I, when I was working in more of like an advertising context and there were other creative people that were working in traditional business. That was like bizarre. For you to realize that you're a creative? 
yeah, for me to realize I was creative and there were other people and that you can work, have a traditional job. Oh, um, yeah, that you can get paid you know for I mean? being creative. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You can get rewarded. And it was a leap, you know, because like I told you, I had a little bit more of a limited worldview growing up. You know, my dad was a business person. A very, and a, he worked in an office and had a traditional business, you know, an 80s office job. Mm-hmm. And what I did was did not look like that, you know. It did not, I did not wear a suit to work every day. You know, it was just kind of a different, there were, I was doing different things. I, I was like thinking about how people feel and I was trying to put things into words and thinking about the power of design. Um, and when I realized that that was a whole world, that's when I got really excited about work. Because before that, I was not excited about work. Oh. I mean, I wasn't really inspired. Before you've sort of tapped into like what makes you tick, you're like, okay, well, I want to get a good job where I'm not miserable and I'll do that till I retire. Then when you right. figure out like, oh, no, this is this is <laughs> something I can really contribute to from my soul and maybe mm-hmm. have an impact and maybe enjoy it during the process. Then you're like, okay, so this isn't just a job anymore. This is a fulfilling pursuit. Yeah, exactly. It's a purpose, right? I mean, yeah. being creative to me is in a way, and you know, there's a lot of talk about purpose these days. And you know, I don't know if you could feel my eyes rolling, but a little. It, and I've read, I've read some of your articles, so we're going to okay. talk about right, purpose good. washing coming up. But right. um, in the in the meantime, while we're still on the, the idealistic uh, definition <laughs> <Yeah>. of purpose, <laughs> right? We'll build it up and tear it down. Okay. Being creative, I realized, was something that deeply motivated me, and the idea of creating something from nothing. Mm-hmm. And especially create something that people might need and want. That's when I started really being motivated to work. And that's ultimately what my what the company's doing now. And you're sort of imagining things that don't already exist and sort of pushing the limits of what's possible and all that. So when your political consulting company morphed into an advertising agency, what happened to your career arc uh, between mm. then and founding Sylvan Labs? It accelerated because I, I somehow had a s- sort of comfort between traditional business and creative contexts. That's a real sweet that, spot. Uh, I, I wish I had that. And I just... <laughs> you do have <laughs> Celebrating it to other creatives out there. If you can feel comfortable in business and creativity, I think that you can really navigate in both worlds. And ultimately, mm-hmm. that's a real asset to be able to speak to both camps. I agree. And there are not many things I, I sort of compliment myself on, but this one, this idea of like, you know, coming from having that more of a traditional upbringing and going to business school and some of that rigor and discipline mm-hmm. that was in place, but I had this emerging sense of creativity that was inherent in me. You know, the, the business side of me was something I had to learn. I, f- I forced myself to do, but the, the creative side of me, I think is a, is like a fundamental part of who I am. And I ended up realizing that those two can happily coexist, which gets to that earlier point about why I enjoyed working in advertising agencies early on is I realized those two things can actually happily coexist in me. You know, I could do both things at the same time. Mm -hmm. I can, I can express myself in a way that's equally as rigorous and disciplined as it is creative and inspired. When I started realizing that was like a, a point of difference for me, that's when my, my career started to pick up. So that was probably in my late twenties. And I ended up at an agency called mother yeah, Mother's a creative agency based out of the UK, and we they had just opened an office in New York. And it was a kind of an avant-garde, progressive creative agency that was really uh, applauded at the time for being so kind of forward. Uh-huh. 
And that's a place where there was like unbridled creativity. You know, people were showing up to work in like flip flops and tank tops. <laughs> it was like, just be creative here. You know, that was, that was the thing. And that's, and I really thrived there. I enjoyed it. And from there, it, the rest is kind of history. You told me you tried on many different identities in college and you sort of forced yourself to learn the business side, which in many ways, it's great to get that out of the way first, because then you know you, you can speak that language. But then to find your creative tribe and also feel your horizons just open up with your own potential, that must have been a really exciting time for you. Yeah, absolutely. And it still is. Yeah. I mean, it's not over. <laughs> yeah. It still yeah. Is. Like, Good. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. And I love this idea of a creative tribe. Like, you know, that should be the name of your podcast. Like that's, that's, um, <laughs> when I realized there were other people like me out there and we were all doing this thing and thinking the same way, it was, it was exhilarating. It's exciting. It's hard to find pe- like-minded people in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's a company that, that I know that, is trying to live in this middle space between creative and business, you know, to, to make it, to oversimplify this, they're trying to, they were trying to do that. They created two roles. There's like a business role and a creative role. And somehow that the bringing those two people in one room that would accomplish that objective. But the, the idea of the alchemy of those two things, that those two things can actually happily coexist in one person in one offering and one company. That's, what I try to do. And that's really where I started to pick up energy. Yeah. The alchemy of that is kind of a magic thing. I've always felt as a creative, one of the things that really energizes me is when I'm able to see a connection between two really disparate things and, and somehow bring that together into something that's greater than the sum of its parts. And it kind of sounds like Mm -hmm. that's what you're getting at too. It's different when you have two people in a room who both have ideas and you find compromises and alignments. And it's another thing when you have somebody who can really understand both things and come up with a completely new third or fourth or fifth solution. That's absolutely what I'm doing. It's absolutely. I'll give you an example. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Example. I did a, I did a research project recently. It was for Google and they wanted to know the difference between the Android user and the iOS user, Mm. you know, the people that use an Android phone versus the people that use an iPhone. And we did a traditional businessy sort of study, you know, asking people, you know, what's your favorite brand? How much did you pay for your phone? Questions like that. But we also asked questions that were a little crazy, like, have you ever been in a fistfight? Have you ever smoked weed? Have you ever had a threesome? And we can actually put those questions together. And we know scientifically, for example, that the Android user is more likely to have been in a fistfight than the iOS user. And that exercise is equal sort of discipline and rigor as it is imaginative and creative because we have to be creative to think about those questions. And now we have these interesting insights, you know, I don't know what you do with them, (laughs) but we have these insights like Android users more likely to have been in a fistfight. What does that say about someone who chooses an Android phone over an iPhone? Whoa. Now I'm trying to identify myself. (laughs) So I would answer yes to all three of those questions. But in the fist fight case, I was merely defending myself. I did not instigate. <laughs> ah, yes, I knew that about you before you even said it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So you founded Sylvain Labs. And as CEO, I'm wondering what that looks for like for you in a, in a practical sense. I mean, you as a team leader, um, as a business visionary, I'm also wondering, you know, <laughs> You've become a certified B Corporation, which is effing cool. And I want to get into your 
actual purpose, not your phony purpose, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about later. Right. And so mm-hmm. can you tell me a little bit about why and how you summed up the gumption and the confidence and the everything that you need to start your own business like this and how you continue to push it forward? So I, I worked at Mother, and then I ended up working at a, a similar company to Sylvain Labs afterwards. And I was in that environment, and I looked around and felt that, you know, for the first time, I had this moment of confidence, which which I don't really have very often in this way, where I was like, "Well, shit, I I can do. I think I could do this. If if he can do this, I can. I could do this. I think I can do this." <laughs> it was, and I kept. I was like, "I think I can," and I basically you know, use my time there to study how to run a strategy and design company and decided to go off and do it myself. And I, I made a couple smart choices early on. I, number one is I, I needed help with HR, legal finance. And my dad, who I mentioned before had done that in his, in his career, he had, he had then sort of retired a little bit. Um, but you could tell he still wanted to work. And so I asked him to join me and he, he helped me start the company, which was amazing. I feel incredibly privileged to have had that experience. I also hired two like recent grads, uh, graduates of graduate school who it was in the re- post recession. They were having a hard time finding a job. Their names were Joey and Ben and, um, convinced them to join me at this very fledgling stage. And that was huge because it, it, it gave me some extra uh, muscle to get things done. I got a really shitty small office space and I had got a, a client that was uh, willing to take a risk on us for the first few months and just hustled. I mean, those first three years, I'd say, was just intense hustle. We were working on anything that we could. We were trying to find the next thing around the corner, just building these relationships. I, for the first year, I was out virtually every breakfast, lunch, dinner, drinks. I was just out meeting people trying to trying to close business. It wasn't until about three years later, after all that hustle, that it really felt worth it. And things started to take care of themselves a little bit more. This is where I knock on wood. Not to, not to stop the story, but I've got to know, mm-hmm. were there moments of doubt? Um, <laughs> obviously, there are ups and downs. So I'm not going to pretend that you probably didn't have down days. But did you ever question your mission? Or did you feel like all of your team had complete investment as well as you did and and your true your compass was always pointed true north and you just knew you had to get to where you were going there are two questions there right yeah one is i never questioned whether we should do this i never once thought it's time to stop i never ever and to this day I'd, i've never really thought about that okay i'm kind of i'm so focused on getting as far as we can as quickly as we can but at the same time I was scared shitless and I've been very scared throughout that time. And I'd say over the nine years, there've probably been five or six times that were really, really scary. You know, moments where, you know, projects that I thought were going to come in completely disappeared or moments where clients decided to not pay us or moments where um, clients were unhappy with something that we did. Can can I ask you a personal question about that? Sure. When you say what's really, really scary, what what is the deepest fear? Is it the fear of letting people down? Is it the fear of financial ruin? Is it the fear of trying to make a positive impact but accidentally making a negative one? What is the deepest fear? For, for me, it's it's a, 
It's very personal. Uh-huh. So it's, it's the idea of uh, letting myself down. Like many of us, you know, I'm, I'm my hardest critic and I, I'm intensely competitive. Mm. And in a way I would, I would be losing. That's, that's what was scary for me. Yeah. Um, and, and of course there are all sorts of consequences that come out of that. You're right. There are other mouths that are dependent on it. You know, mouths that need to be fed. Right. Um, my family and so on, um, including my dad. Right. Yeah. Great job, Ellen. You, you, (laughs) now dads can't eat. (laughs) Exactly. You took my name or you took the name and you made it the name of the company and then you fucked it up (laughs) and now I can't eat. Yeah. It was definitely this instinct to succeed. And I I still feel that, you know, the the hard times don't stop. Things still present themselves that are very, very challenging. I'm facing new challenges every day. What I try to do is approach everything with that same level of intensity and that I had early on, I think that still exists today. This idea of being fearful of failure. It's funny because you hear a lot of people talk about fail fast and we all need to fail and there's so much you can learn from failure. Yeah, that's that's definitely true in a micro way, but when it's your life purpose and people are dependent on you, I don't have, Sylvain Labs can't fail. There's no room for failure. Right. I mean, it's one thing if you're talking about iteration, right? Yeah, we want right. to see where that product has points where it's going to fail so we can learn from those and iterate a new one without that failure in it. But when it comes mm-hmm. to your life, yeah, I mean, I guess yeah. re- there's I mean, lots to learn from rebounding from failure too. So true. how would I know? I've never failed in my life. Um, <laughs> totally kidding. But tell me why it was really important to you to become a certified B corporation and also mm-hmm. give our listeners a sense of what that is in case they don't know. Sure. So to be a certified B Corporation means that you've been certified by an organization called the B Lab to place social impact and environmental impact at the core of your company's mission. That, in fact, you practice at the highest level of responsibility when it comes to social and environmental impact. We're beholden to a number of criteria and we get audited by B Lab to make sure that we're upholding a standard, meaning... Do we take care of our employees properly? Are we providing the right opportunities for well-being and you know parental leave and maternity leave and or, or so whatever you want to whatever you want to call it? There's also you know environmental responsibility. Are we making the right choices when it comes to our footprint? Are we making an impact to society at large, like a positive impact to society at large? They, they audit all those things. They look at our policies. They look at our client work, and they they give you a score, and it's a score out of a hundred, and you have to get over eighty to be certified B Corporation. We got an 80.6. Um, and you can actually go to their site and see our see our page. We got an 80. We, we barely got it. And the reason we barely got it was there, there are virtually no consulting or design companies that have that standing. It's usually manufacturing companies or companies that work in the nonprofit space that have that standing. Patagonia is the biggest and most famous certified B Corporation. And that's Patagonia, right? Like they, they uphold environmental responsibility at the highest and we're in the company of that. There aren't many others. You know, if you look at our client list, we work with the Googles and the PepsiCo's. Some of those companies don't necessarily have the, the best environmental footprint, mm-hmm. but somehow through our other policies, we were able to kind of skate by and get that certification. It's a, it's a huge thing because it's, it's incredibly differentiating. And I, I feel very confident in saying that there, there are not many other companies like mine that work in private industry that have that standing. And and to get to your to your question, like why do we do it? 
maybe it's because I worked on those campaigns a long time ago. Maybe it's because my, my mom worked for the UN. I've always had a conflict. I, I wonder if you too have had this conflict. I've always had this conflict where I was dependent on business to, to kind of get the project and, and, and to really get the opportunity to be creative. Sometimes not really believing in, in that, uh, the agenda of big business, right? And, and knowing that big business, there's problems there and the bad decisions that are made and capitalists at all costs can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so I, I've always had this conflict for, when doing this work. Like, do I really want to help PepsiCo create a new carbonated soft drink? Do I really, does the world really need a new carbonated soft drink? You know, high fructose corn syrup is not good for people. Right. And and so what I what we did with becoming a certified B Corp mission, it forces us to make sure at the end of the day, our impact is positive. Along with that certification, we're also being more choiceful about the clients and projects we work on. So we, we don't work on carbonated soft drinks anymore, for example. Um, there are other things that we just won't touch. We will never work on fast food. Um, it's just something we we won't do. Okay. Because I don't I don't I don't believe that there's a way to do that that has a positive impact. You're Maybe not designing fruity vape flavors. <laughs> no, we came close. <laughs> we came close. We had that meeting. But we didn't. We're not going to do that. Okay. So that's why it's it's important to me. Do you, I mean, do you have that same conflict? Yeah, I do. I mean, design? my my parents were pretty liberal, but conservative in that they felt the same way that that creativity just wasn't secure, and we want the best for you, and that means getting a good job. So, go to a good school and get a good job. And my mom was a business person, and my dad was an academic. So those were the two things that they knew and that they felt really confident supporting: business and academics. And so I had the luxury of going to art school built on their backs, right, that my, that my mom succeeded at business and that my dad succeeded in academics. When I finally gave myself permission to go to art school to ex- explore my creativity, I was so conscious of the fact that I was there amongst people who also had that privilege, that other people who are really close to survival just were not pursuing art school, <laughs> And it just made me think about consumerism in in the same way that my creativity was exploding. That made me really aware of looking at things and and looking at systems and looking deeper into the mechanics of things and how they operated. And I remember somebody describing to me like what was both fascinating and devious about a carbonated soft drink, which was that Mm -hmm. they came up with these micromolecules that would burst when you twist open the cap. So you'd get a, a burst of this scent, which would trigger the, this, you know, dopamine response or something in your brain and make you want more soda. And I was like, mm. wow, that's really fucking cool and also kind of <laughs> evil. And <laughs> right. subsidizing corn means now we have all this high fructose corn syrup that we're not really investigating how it's not healthy for society and not using that as the ultimate metric for why we should or shouldn't use it. We're using dollars as the ultimate mm-hmm. metric. And that, yeah. So I, I feel your yeah, conflict yeah. there. I also feel comforted by the fact there are people like you who are attempting to sort of dismantle some of these things. And, and you, you can't take down big business, but you can start to guide them towards... Mm-hmm. A, w- a better way forward. Exactly. Exactly. What you just said is our mission. Yeah. Okay. Actually, like Sylvain Labs' purpose, and, and we write this down, we say that our mission is to leverage the might of corporations for the greater good. Yeah. And that's that's the work we're doing is can we help 
companies make better decisions that ultimately help people all the while still get, you know, we're still driven by profit. We're still driven, you know, to take care of ourselves. And I still have my own personal needs, my own lifestyle needs. I don't have to compromise any of those things. But at the end of the day, can I look at myself in the eye and feel like I made the best decisions possible? Now, I, I don't know that we've nailed this and, I, and I'm still in conflict. I think B, the B certification helps some, but this, I'm not completely absolved with this problem. I, I still struggle with this. This is, and I, and I don't, I don't know that you can be a modern worker uh, at works in private industry and not feel this to some degree I don't, I, that I can't feel. I, I think this idea that I'm contributing to the problem um, to, to some degree is, is going to be omnipresent. I'm trying to get to a place where my day-to-day work is doing the, the most it can and also try to give myself more freedom to contribute to the, you know, the causes that I care about. Well, I'm going to say that as an alchemist, as somebody who can speak both business and creativity, like this is this is your job. I'm I'm sorry you feel the conflict, but you know you have to suit up and go into battle, Alan. <laughs> this is where you're yeah. you're doing the work that we need you to do. <laughs> Maybe and I don't know. Am I doing it well? Am I succeeding? I don't know. I think about I think about some of those things, but I, I can give you some examples of times where we I feel I think we did something like something happened. Oh yeah, we made, I'd we love made a to good hear choice. some like, examples. We recently worked with the WNBA, which is the Women's Basketball League, um, and helped them sort of reinvent the league and find new ways to make money and new ways to present itself. And one of the key recommendations was about acknowledging the players and acknowledging women's sports and the power of women's sports and what it means for young girls as they grow. They acknowledge that the players are largely women of color, acknowledge a lot of the players are, are gay or queer just really putting some of that marginal voice on the forefront. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was, we came in guns a blazing. We were like, yo, this league is amazing. These athletes are amazing. Celebrate who they are and kind of force that company because it is a company to think about and to uh, prioritize sort of marginal voices. And that's us leveraging the might of big institutions for the greater good. And it turns out in that case, that was, something, you know, our clients were amazing and they agreed and they saw the the business value in that as well. And it, and we're now out in the world and we're now creating change. That, that's an example. You know, we, we do that with, with WNBA. We're trying the same thing with, with other brands, you know, how can we help them leverage all their, all that they can do for, for the greater good. So speaking of that, you've, you've also just written an article about the misappropriation appropriation of corporate purpose. And so, I mean, I know there's authenticity in what you just did for the WNBA. And mm-hmm. you've also been outspoken about the the dangers of people using the, you know, the language, the vernacular of purpose, but mm-hmm. not really backing it up with practicing what they preach. To me, it's very clear. On the, on the one hand, you have companies that are talking about purpose and a lot is being written about purpose and companies are coming out and saying, you know what our purpose is, our purpose is blah, blah, blah. And it's opportunistic. You know, they, they know that research is showing that consumers prefer brands that have a purpose, a clearly expressed purpose. Employees, especially quote unquote millennials want to work for companies that have a stated purpose. They want to feel like they're part of a bigger cause. And so there's like a new, there's a new value to having a purpose, a new, it's a new business value. And sure enough, businesses are leaning into that. And you have tons of companies that are now espousing purpose. Mm -hmm. What was it? Gillette 
a few months ago, they did this, this commercial that was like, you know, they used to be the best a man can get. And now they were talking about the best a man can be, mm-hmm. which talked about the, you know, how men need to take a responsibility in this new era of in this me too time of uh, you know, being aware of their privilege and so on. Sure. Important mission. Would they have done it if not for this new premium on purpose? I'm not sure. Would they, would they have done it if they didn't see the success Nike had with Colin Kaepernick? I'm not sure. Moments like that are exploitation of purpose. The moments like that are the misappropriation of purpose, using it as weaponized purpose. That, that to me is is problematic. When it's authentic, when it's woven into the fabric of the company, like Patagonia is a great example of this. They, they, don't, they don't go out and saying, I, we've got a purpose. Our purpose is X, Y, and Z. You'll, you, you will never find Patagonia's purpose written in writing. What you will instead see are these bold moves, these campaigns and these initiatives and you know, telling consumers not to buy products. Like They, they act versus talk. Mm-hmm. And the, the purpose washing is when people just talk. That to me is the fundamental difference. You know, when if you if you need to make a commercial about your purpose, then it's inauthentic. If if you want to promote it in that way, then it's it's not real. Mm-hmm. So that's I get worked up about it. Did you notice that? I yeah, up. I did notice that, <laughs> and I struggle with that too because the inauthenticity bothers me, and yet the fact that cultural norms are changing and we're putting pressure on companies to change their cultural norms. I see value in that too. And mm-hmm. if they change True. it first by talking about it and second by being accountable to what they're talking about, is that change? Is that okay? I mean, I think there's a number of ways to skin a cat, but I I agree with you that purpose washing and just espousing a certain belief so that you can sell more product it feels creepy. It is creepy. I mean, Facebook is a purpose about, you know, it's something to do with connecting the world, mm-hmm. right? Connecting people with each other. And it's a stated purpose. And, and they they talk about it a lot. And Mark, Mark Zuckerberg talks about it a lot. But it took 10 years <laughs> of them making really careless decisions before they really started to change that company and really direct it in a way that was better for society. Yeah, true. Um, I hear what you're saying. So, so I, I, I think it's problematic. I think, I think the, the words purpose and the, how loose the CEOs are and using it and promoting concepts is, is problematic. You know, I, it's too much of a deferred, a default weapon to, to kind of get attention. And it's, it's rarely, rarely, rarely something that's woven into the fabric, into the DNA of the company. Like, like a place like Patagonia. Right? Yeah, I hear you. It's really just trying to present an image to, to the consumer as opposed mm-hmm. to really trying to tinker with the system from the inside. Right. Now, I, I get reminded that there's an optimistic way to look at this. And I think that's where you were getting at a little bit. That when it's done right and when companies prioritize purpose in the right way, real positive impact can happen. And financial impact can happen. It's actually smart business Mm -hmm. to be purpose-driven. So when when all those things are kind of balanced with a level of authenticity, I think that's positive. I'm trying to be optimistic. I'm not trying to be so (laughs) such a hater. I'm so good at that. I'm like, this this sucks. (laughs) It's like, like I'm I'm a good good hater. Well, uh, you've seen a lot. So uh, (laughs) I'm sure not all of it's been pretty. So 
Listen, you just came from Adobe's 99U conference where you gave a master class entitled Reclaiming Innovation, how big business diluted the practice and how we can take it back. And I know we can't do the whole master class here on this podcast, but I think that's a fascinating title. And I also love the just outspokenness of it. And can you tell us what like the central thesis of that talk was? And well, that, that one is about the term innovation and how we've upheld it as this, this really powerful concept, but yet we don't really understand it. And we all sort of laugh, you know, we kind of chuckle to ourselves or roll our eyes when that term is used, like innovation, innovation. And I'm just trying to acknowledge that, that it's lost its meaning. And, and, I, and I talked about how that happened, you know, using history and etymology and, and, and you know, the inception of the word and how it's changed. Um, you know, if you go to hashtag innovation, there are over 5 million Ugh. images on Instagram. And some of them you're like, how is this, how is this image <laughs> hashtag innovation? And what it's a I pancake try to argue, in the shape of a donut. <laughs> exactly. Not even that. Not even that. Okay. There's this one image I talk about in the presentation where it's a, uh, it's just like a dog smiling. And there's a, a, like a caption at the bottom that's like, it's the weekend. Yay. Hashtag innovation. Oh God. It's like, what? How, how is that? And so we use it as sort of a placeholder word. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I tried to do is sort of reclaim it and give it new meaning or better said, like more appropriate meaning based on how it was invent- how it was kind of originally used. And then talked about what innovation means for us at Sylvain Labs and how that comes off through our work. What does innovation mean for you at Sylvain Labs? For us, it's it's really about advocacy for something new. Yeah, it's not necessarily inventing something new. It's not necessarily creating something different. It's it's really advocating for something new in a, in a new way. And we do that through truth, possibility, and impact. You know, thinking about what's true, thinking about what's possible, and thinking about what can actually have a positive impact in the world. Um, that to us is innovation. That's really powerful in that there are so many good ideas or innovative ideas that aren't necessarily capable of making a positive impact or the ones that are aren't necessarily capable of making it through the system without the advocacy. And sometimes Mm -hmm. you need the research and the support and somebody who can message the idea and help people understand it in a way to really communicate the value of the possibility that hasn't been proven out yet because it's a new idea. So we all we can do is project. But Based on, you know, our expertise and and our research, we think we should shepherd this through into reality and we think it'll have a positive impact. And Mm -hmm. that's a really hard thing to do. A lot of good ideas on the floor because they can't make it through the system. It's funny you say that, you know, so I did this masterclass to a group of designers. It was a couple hundred designers. And... That was the thing people wanted to talk about. Exactly what you said, which was, well, how do you get it through? How do you work with the bureaucracy? How does it, that, that was the, the key obstacle. I think a lot of design driven people are thinking about. It's like, yeah, yeah. It's not about good ideas. It's about feasibility. Like, can you pull it off? And I find that really interesting because there, there are ways to hack the system and get shit done. There are experts at that you know, oftentimes they're not the same people that come up with the ideas. And so I think there's something interesting about combining the two, like feasibility, making shit happen, as well as invention and creativity. 
I, I absolutely agree. And I think that when you can combine the two, you can also be a little bit more self-aware about your own ideas and know when they're not feasible. I think sometimes you can get really in love with a good idea for its promise um, and right. be a little bit feasibility blind. Yes, <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, that's their whole, their businesses that are based on that, <laughs> on like fantasy, you know, like the fantasy of your idea versus like the actual execution of it. You know, I was thinking of the day of like, there are all sorts of businesses that have been created to help people create businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, like it used to be, can you create a new novel idea? And now it's almost like the idea is to help someone else create a novel idea. If that makes sense, like you have things like Squarespace and, you know, Wix and all these companies that are like, we can help make your dream a reality. Mm -hmm. I just find it interesting that fantasy is actually the thing as opposed to the thing itself. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. It's like that promise, like I can do something. Like that's the thing that we're going to convince people of versus convincing them to buy a thing that they need. Right. It's like I can convince you that you have a dream. You have a dream and you need this this product in order to make that dream a reality. Exactly. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about your creative process. So a big business comes to you and says, we need your help. Mm -hmm. Where does it go from there? <laughs> I wish I had a good answer for this. And I wish I was really self-critical enough where I can say, this is my process. But maybe like you and like a lot of other people who try to be creative, it's a little bit more random. For sure, I am a person that diverges before I converge. You know, there is definitely mm -hmm. a step in what I do that's about pulling things apart, deconstructing things. Also looking at analogs, that's like a, a big, big part of everything I do is I look at other industries, other parts of society. I look at science, I look at nature, I look at history and pop culture. Are there things going on that we can learn from? Mm -hmm. And so that first step for me is very, very sort of expansive. And it's, and I, what I look for are moments of inspiration, you know, like, oh my God, this is just like this one thing. You know, for example, I was working on a project um, we were trying to think about how do we talk about the connected home for people um, in a way that would make them go out and buy like a smart home or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, because people aren't doing that, by the way, the, the technology exists, but people aren't actually bringing it home as much as you might think. Yeah, I have real, so I was, I was, that's a separate you, you, conversation, but I have real issues <laughs> with smart home technology. So <laughs> creepy, right? Yeah. But it was, a, it was, a, it was a project. It's like, how do you, how do you get people to be aware of this stuff? And so what we did was we studied email in the nineties and really said, how did that become a thing? Like what needed to happen for email to be adopted so widely? And there were a few things about it. it one thing, you know, the name of it approximated something that we knew, like this idea of mail, um, even though it was a very different experience, actually the purveyors of it, the companies that presented it to us had us had to have a certain sort of language about it mm -hmm. in AOL and CompuServe. What I try to do in my process is definitely like a diverging and I look for things we can learn from. I look for um, things in other cultures and history to, to really give me a sense of what's possible and what we can learn from. And then from there, I think I don't really know. Well, when you do the happens. diverging, is what does that look like? Is that a, a general like sort of looking up at the sky and scratching your head? Is it a deep Google search? Is it a post-it notes all over a wall? Um, is it just you pulling at threads and having brainstorms in the shower? And then when you find that moment of inspiration, like you were just saying, is it a physiological response that clues you in? Yes, that's true. 
the exercise is all of those things. You know, it's, it's the Google, it's the sky. It's kind of opening myself up to stimuli in a new way. Mm-hmm. You know, when I, when I have a challenge, it's like I kind of open up myself. I also, which is important, I also sort of refer to my archive in my head, you know, because I've seen a lot like, and we all have seen a lot. And I'm thinking, what are some things I've seen? What are some things I've experienced that, that can be useful here? Um, you know, it was that one time I was in that one place where I saw that one thing that can be useful. That requires a certain level of quiet, um, that sort of introspection mm-hmm. for me. And it, it, and it requires some quiet. That's why the shower is <laughs> such a source of inspiration for people because you're alone and you're in your head. Mm-hmm. That's a big part of it for me. And then your body reacts when you, yes. when you hit an idea that's worth exploring. Yes, totally. And I, I like that you put it that way. It's definitely a sort of reaction where you know that you're, you're talking about something new or something that's, that's exciting and has a really great potential. That is absolutely a biological thing. In fact, in my, in my talk, in my masterclass, I talked about the biological response we get to newness. There are, we have like a dopamine surge and our heart rate increases, our, our blood pressure increases that we, we literally get aroused by new ideas and when that arousal happens, that's when I know there's something good there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's yeah. the fix, right? Yeah. That's totally. Creatives are it's addicts totally and that's the fix. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm addicted. <laughs> so we should probably wrap up because I don't want to take all, all day. Although I feel like I could talk to you forever. Thank you for sharing <laughs> yes, so much of, of your wisdom with us. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if we get, you call it wisdom, but. But I love talking to you. That was, it was very fun. Oh, awesome. Okay. Well, before we let you go, I want to ask you a little bit about how you take care of Alan and how you keep your personal guidance system calibrated. Do you have a support network? Do you have a self-care ritual? Do you know when you're burning yourself out and course correct somehow? There's something about the fact that this company is such a part of who I am that I really haven't come close to burning out. And maybe it is because I'm in a perpetual state of burnout. I don't know. But, and I'm not, I'm not saying this in a bragging way at all. I'm not proud of it that I'm so consumed by my work. But it's almost like the work itself helps me care, take care of myself. I, I'll probably be working no matter what I do. Now, do I have a, sort of a, a system of support? Yes. You know, that's, that's absolutely my family. That's, a, that's, uh, you know, my, my parents and my wife and kids and every, you know, my friends and my colleagues that are around me, there are a lot of people who are rooting for me and people who have high expectations of me and people who, who are invested in my success and all those people I can rely on. Um, when it comes to self-care, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to people, whether it's on, you know, moments like this or on a stage or whatever. And I'm, I'm absolutely more of an introvert, introverted person. I love being alone. I love being in my own head. Mm-hmm. I play chess uh, online for like an hour and a half every day. And my days are very busy, but somehow I find an hour and a half every day to play chess. And maybe it was, it's not in one chunk. Maybe it's like 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there. That is the most therapeutic moment of my day. It allows me, it's, it's somehow mindless. You know, I'm not really thinking too hard because I'm so used to chess and openings and all that. It's also competitive. So I get a bit of a surge mm-hmm. that someone like me gets. It's also deeply strategic and creative, you know, thinking about moves and thinking six moves ahead and what's possible 
so I get a, I get a bunch of different hits in those moments. Um, and so that's a big part of my self-care ritual are, are these like moments for myself to kind of be a little mindless. I'm so glad you shared that. And it's also, I think, really nice for our listeners to hear that you have a thing that you give yourself permission to do and you just do it and you know you can see the value in it and it feels good um, and it sharpens your mind. It's not like a guilty, self-sabotaging type behavior. It's just, oh, maybe I'm not tackling my to-do list right now, but I'm take, right. taking care of my my psyche. I'm glad you asked the question. I mean, we don't, we're not really uh, in a culture where we're allowed to talk about self-care in that way. So it's very cool. Well, I know that you're a B Corp and you're driven by real purpose, authentic purpose with your, you know, stars in your eyes and your fanciest idealism cap on. What are your highest hopes, like moonshot highest hopes for the Mm -hmm. impact that Sylvain Labs can contribute to through your continued emphasis and exploration and the work that you're doing? Yeah, no, I love that. And it's easy for me to get starry eyed. It's like, I'm, I'm always like right there. If you just need me, to, I'm like right there. <laughs> for me, it's, it's a little bit of what we just talked about. You know, can, can I get this company to a place where we're not compromising who we are, our values? Are we truly aligned with what's good and right and what we consider important? Like there's, there's no compromise, like zero compromise. The person I am at home is the person I am at work and the company is as well. Like are all those things completely aligned? And, and I think I'm close, you know, I, I think I'm close and I, I'm lucky because it's my company. So I, I can afford to, to do this more than others, but I, I can afford to achieve this a little bit more than others. Maybe I'm not there hundred percent. And for me, you know, the day that I'll, I'll feel like we would have achieved something is the day I'll say like, yes, everything is clicking and there's no compromise in who we really are. So that potential of a full click is <laughs> what you can always work toward. I mean, I think that's what we're all ultimately working towards is we're tweaking things here and there to just get everything more closely aligned, our, our soul's purpose or however you, you know, imagine your connection to something that's bigger than you are. I love that you just make it so front and center of everything that you do. I'm not, I would be lying to you if I don't, I don't feel a level of disappointment sometimes, you know, it's like, it's front and center in my head, but is it front and center every day in my actions is, is a question I have, you know? Well, I mean, let's, let's not pretend you're not human. <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that, is that allowed here? Okay, cool. Before we let you go, will you please let our listeners know about a new project that you want them to follow or give us your URL and social media handles so we can keep tabs on your work? Sure. Uh, you can find us at, at Sylvain Labs, uh, S-Y-L-V-A-I-N Labs on all the social platforms or sylvainlabs.com. Uh, my name is uh, Alain Silva, A-L-A-I-N Sylvain. New projects. You know, we have a podcast too called uh, Critical Nonsense. I love it. Uh, where we have two people here who host the show and bring on guests and talk about random cultural ephemera. And it's doing well. It's pretty cool. Uh, that's uh, I'm pretty proud. I'm proud of that one. Cool. We will check it out, man. Thank you so much. This has been a really enlightening conversation for me. And I just appreciate you being so generous with your yourself. Oh, it's so nice. Thank you, Amy. It was nice to talk to you. I love, I love your show. What you're doing is cool. Thanks for listening. 
To see images of Sylvan Labs' work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Be sure to subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would do us a favor, please rate and review us. It really helps us or tell one of your friends who loves design. Yes, tell all your friends about us. We love chatting with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook too. You can find us at Clever Podcast. Clever is created and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.